Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 132, Catelyn in a Clash of Kings, chapter 4. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And this week we have a very special guest. It's the Shadow Baby. Say hello. <laughs> it's a Shadow <laughs> Baby <hello>. shower. <laughs> Oh, come on out, little guy. Don't be shy. Our our other other host, the Shadow Baby. Mm-hmm. Just kidding. I wish. We should really try to get that guy. Huh. Cold. Anyway. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> uh, this is a, we should not be joking. This is a very serious chapter with witchcraft afoot and magic and sadness and death and war and foreshadowing. Yeah, it, it it's a lot of foreshadowing and I mean some stuff is that is foreshadowed, right? I guess that, that happens here. A lot of things happen here. Yeah. And, you know, last week we really took a lot of time to explore both Stannis and Renly and kind of what each one has that the other doesn't. And, and just shit on what's them. What's going on in those. Yeah. You know, like, girls, you're both pretty. <laughs> both of you are kings, ladies. <laughs> Sit down. This pl- uh, it's just plastic. <laughs> Let's just break the little crown and give each of them a piece. Uh, that's what I thought. That's literally the end of Game of Thrones, season eight, episode six. Bran just, like, takes the crown and Sansa grabs it from him and she's just like, it's just plastic, cold, hard, shiny plastic. Catelyn suggested Actually, that's a lot about, yeah, that's a lot about what this episode is, actually. Yeah, she suggests it. Now that you mention it. Well. There's a lot of end game of Thrones to talk about. We'll get to that. But first, you're all dying to hear about our Patreon special episode this month. That's right. If you are a patron in the stranger tier, $5 here and above, you get special episodes every month. They are catered toward A Song of Ice and Fire every other month, and every other other month, they're His Dark Materials. This month is one of your other months, and we are going to cover another free city, another free city of the nine, and this month we're covering Lorath, the islands in the Shivering Sea, the northern coast of Essos. I'm I'm excited about this one. This is a very mysterious kind of place, and uh, it it used to be ruled by three princes: the Harvest Prince, the Fisher Prince, and the Prince of the Streets. So I'm sure we're going to find a lot of parallels to current A Song of Ice and Fire to chat about. Indeed, and it is a mysterious place, and I, I it'll be a fun place to go to cool off during these hot summer months. Yeah, this global climate change, sis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is hot. We are always looking for a way to cool off. (laughs) Well, another activity that you can do this summer is join our brunch slash happy hour, which this month's Patreon brunch is going to be, as always, on Discord, available for patrons $10 and above, Thunder tier and above. It's going to be this coming Sunday. July 18th. So if you are listening to this on Friday, it's this coming Sunday. If you're listening to this, I mean, if you're you're a patron and you're listening to this ahead of time, that means that you have access to this brunch. So please join us from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern time. And then, uh, so we are skewing things a little earlier this month because at 3 p.m., Thousand Eyes and One is covering the City We Became by N.K. Jemison in their Wine on an Empty Stomach book club right after. So not only join us for games afterwards, go let, let's all go join them and tune into their coverage of that novel. Yeah, I'm excited for that live stream. And they, they do have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. A lot of wine on an empty <laughs> stomach gets a drink there. Pre-game. Uh, and, We're going to pre-game. 
There's actually so much happening July 18th. It's truly Christmas hmm. in July. Ooh, that should, oh my that should God. be good. Guess it's next idea. year's brunch theme. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get ready 12 months from now. Oh, I've got it all planned out. I know what we're going to be doing that day. If you're looking to double team some content Sunday after brunch, also right right before 3 p.m. at 2:55 p.m. going live is us question mark we did a panel on podcasting fandom and audio in general with some wonderful new friends from the skybound podcast network and other creations like gabriel urbina the creator of wolf 359 and he's a writer on the bright sessions which eliana i'm sure can tell you all more she got very invested in the bright sessions when we were kind of talking with some of them I, i i honestly want to start it now you've got me going uh, and Lauren Shippen, who's the creator of the Bright Sessions, was also on this panel, co-producer of the BBC cast Passenger List, and more recently writer of Marvels, the audio adaptation of the comic. So I was very excited about that because I have read a little bit of Marvels. And John Roca from the Cinephiles podcast, Geek Buddies Top Ten, and of course our wonderful friend Alexandra August of Game of Thrones Got Thrones podcast and other podcast productions episode it was actually really fun it was really interesting to just meet other people in the medium but using it slightly differently from us and learn some of the quirks that they're seeing in the industry and i don't know we had fun it'll be going live 2 55 p.m eastern time we will update this with a link and i hope you enjoy listening yeah it was a great time and getting to see another side right of of podcasting from people who are creating the sort of fiction that that fans interact with and so that was that was a great conversation and yeah i mean i've been checking out the you know their podcasts and i i have quite liked you know zero hours i need to spend more time with wolf 359 but um zero hours is an interesting concept of like a bunch of different like short stories right or audio mm. they're like audio dramas right um of apocalyptic events or events that seem like mm-hmm. they might be apocalyptic and then the bright sessions is is different it's um a couple of people right special ability abilities in their conversations with a therapist and it's building it's interesting as uh, things get move forward so yeah real fun yeah, I'm excited to see how the panel came out. I don't know if they're going to chop anything. Uh, drop Alexandra. Everyone will be surprised. Alex, yeah. cursing. We were good. Alex cursing. We were, we were good. good. We didn't curse once. No Not one fuck. Yep. Yeah, which if you've been following along with that saga, I bested mm. Eliana in fuck, apparently, yes. on Twitter. Only on Twitter. Uh, but I, I've seen some nuanced takes in return. Our friend Brian of Farce had wrote in that yours are delicately done and kind of more carefully planned where mine are just like you know dropping like flies on the ground loudly i thought it was that uh, mine were like slipped in and then or something right like sneaky sneaky yeah, you're so much sneakier which yours, sounds creepy um, you're the shield no wait you're the sword no you're the faceless man here mm. Yeah, maybe. And You're the, the faceless fuck man. And then Thunderclap hmm. agreed with Brian Afaris on Podbean. So I'm um, like, interesting, interesting. Hey, and you know, here we are again, joining new friends together through Podbean comments this time. Really? Yeah. Uh, I think it's powerful. Podbean. If you want to make new friends, you should definitely <laughs> come check out our Podbean comments. Uh, the reviews, even the iTunes reviews, you can make friends there, I'm hearing. And Discord, of course. Discord's the easiest one, probably. 
<laughs> well, other places you can make new friends is, uh, you know, with other other stories to get into. For example, we do still cover the His Dark Materials books. So we will be back at the very last week of the month, probably out the 30th, for public consumption with The Amber Spyglass, episode two. Episode two covering a few chapters. So yeah. I'm excited about that. I Rereading it, I haven't really gotten to give it a really thorough reread since my immediate second reread and i don't know that i saw through all the tears i cried while rereading it so this slow reread is kind of what i needed i think yeah it is time to just sort of space things in between and space out the the emotions you know what's a good book when you gotta like read it to yourself one chapter at a time take some time to kind of resonate on it after maybe smoke yeah. a few cigars think what? about your childhood and hmm. how it's lost forever interesting uh, this is that kind of book you know so if you're into that check out the his dark Materials series interesting speaking of innocence and youth being lost we've got a lot of that in this episode right we do a lot of we that do. coming up definitely but before we jump into this episode uh we have this wonderful tweet of note from our friend Sam of the Rainbow Guard in reaction to A Clash of Kings Catelyn 2 uh, that was posted on Twitter in regards to the, the episode where Brienne first makes an appearance and about some of his personal feelings regarding Brienne. Yes. Sam wrote, Girls Gone Canon caught me off guard in their Clash of Kings Cat 2 episode and had me tearing up as I drove because they used he and then they pronouns for Brienne. It was because in the moment during the melee, Cat reads the Blue Knight as a man. But Brienne as a trans-masculine figure is everything to me, and it felt so fucking validating hearing other people use those pronouns for them. I feel at home with Brienne, existing in the borderlands between binaries. Masculine but fanciful, longing for songs, naive, attracted to men, but very queerly, that the objects of Brienne's love are Renly, explicitly gay, and Jamie, exceedingly queer-coded, feels intentional. Brienne is the teenage girl in love with the charismatic, popular gay guy at theater camp who's inexplicably nice to them. Brienne doesn't quite understand their own desire, doesn't quite understand why they want that guy and why that sexual desire fans the other desire. The desire that's always there to look and feel and dress and act in the way that feels natural but goes against everything they've been taught. Girls Gone Canon also brought up the question of, does Brienne have a death wish regarding winter will never come for the likes of us, which, of course, there's no place in the world for Brienne. To die in battle, memorialized in song, they don't see a better alternative. Brienne knows that, just like brave Danny Flint, a song is the best fate that could await someone like them. The song resolves the problem of Brienne, because all knights are gallant, all maids are beautiful, and the sun is always shining. In death and in song, the ambiguity and discomfort of Brienne's lived existence melts away, because in the songs there are only gallant knights and beautiful maids, and Brienne is no longer responsible for trying to fit themselves into either mode. Categorizing them will be the problem of the bard writing the song. I loved this. This was just such a great thread to, to read and read someone's lived experiences and how they identify with Brienne, and I, I think there's just so much complexity to Brienne in what Brienne wants, right? Brienne wants to be able to be a knight, but to be able to love freely and to be able to be herself. And uh, I I'm really just glad to see this thread and think about these things from all different angles that I might not have thought about it before. Yeah, same. I, I was really glad to see this come in the notifications and, and go through it. So thank you so much, Sam, for writing all this and, and for 
you know, tagging us and making sure that we saw it. Yeah, I mean, it, what you said, reading it through Sam's lens and experiences, but also, I, I mean, I think some of this is just also really great analysis, right? In terms of, well, first of all, I love the comparison with uh, being in love with the popular gay guy at theater camp. Yep. Um, and that was a relevant one. That, that was real. Um, and also, you know, the, the fanning of like the desire and where where to fit in. But also, I mean, you know, we had kind of like raised somewhat jokingly, like, uh, does Brienne have a death wish? But I think that this is such a fantastic like answer to just because that solves the problem of like, where does Brienne fit in a world with such rigid gender roles? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's now making me think much more deeply about that line of, you know, all nights are gallant, all maids are beautiful, and the sun is always shining. And I mean, we're coming into a part in these books, right? where it's been hammered to us often that, wait, maybe not all knights are gallant, and perhaps the maids aren't always beautiful. (laughs) And as we enter the long night, the sun is not always shining. So that gives us a moment in which there's all of this like ambiguity, as as you're talking about, um, and as Sam was talking about, where all of these lines between identity and gender and all those like what's what society asks of people becomes really slippery and amorphous and Brienne I think is such a perfect encapsulation of why that's important and why we can't live in songs and how much more beautiful sometimes reality is for that better than the songs even though the songs make it seem like that's what's perfection yeah absolutely this chapter also helps paint that that thinking that all knights are gallant, all maids are beautiful, and the sun is always shining, and having these categories that you fit your society to, and uh, some might call it an optimistic look, right? But it's it's not, and by living that way, and by categorizing that way, and by only, you know, perpetuating your society to be that way, and accepting what fits into those very, very linear square boxes and those little checks, that, that obviously doesn't work when society fails, Absolutely. And we're going to learn that as we go along. <laughs> as the books come out. No, wait, what? Hmm. Oh my god, okay. Fine. Thank you so much, Sam. That was such a great thread to read again. Uh, and I don't know, I, I, I don't want to blow it because someday, someday in the next, whatever, 15 books, we're going to get to Brienne. And I know that we are just going to coo in awe and gush about it forever. So... <laughs> Fear us now. Well, first we're going to briefly coo and awe over uh, our the single chapter that is in our brief lightning round. Sansa 3. Sansa pays for her brother's victory in the Lannister. I mean, Baratheon. Who said that? Baratheon Bra- Court? Bra- Baratheon Court. Bra- definitely the hmm. Baratheon Court. Sounds fake, but sure, Stan. <laughs> uh, that is what Stan is saying. Four. Right, let us record. The worst part in this chapter is when everyone's like, "Damn, maybe Stannis was right." <sighs> Catelyn four. A realization dawns on Catelyn just as a shadow baby dawns on Renly. Sorry, I I just want to stop right there and like really appreciate this line that you wrote, Chloe, because not only not only is this yes what happens, but also the usage of dawn considering the time. That this chapter is mm. taking place. Brilliant. 
brilliant Thank work. Thank you. You know, if I was writing this as a before this chapter, I would have said a crowning is about to take place. Oh, oh. okay. <sighs> wow. Okay, 401k. Okay. okay. Okay, 75k. Uh, Maybe we can use that in the in the notes. We can use that in the uh, the episode description. <laughs> After the great crowning. Uh, Yorick has a friend for dinner. Catalan and her small retinue have returned to the previous small village. The night is full and dark. She wonders if this place had a name. It brings back memories of being a girl at River Run, learning about septs from Septon Osmond. A sept is a single building with seven walls and seven aspects. In Winterfell, Septon Chale hanged carved masks from each wall. In this unnamed place, there are charcoal drawings of the seven. Sir Wendell waits outside with Robar while Catelyn examines the faces. The father was bearded as ever. The mother smiled, loving and protective. The warrior had his sword sketched in beneath his face. The smith, his hammer, the maid was beautiful, the crone wizened and wise. And the seventh face. The stranger was neither male nor female, yet both. Ever the outcast and unknowable. Here the face was a black oval, a shadow with stars for eyes. It made Catelyn uneasy. She would get scant comfort there. She knelt before the mother. My lady, look down on this battle with a mother's eyes. They are all sons, every one. Spare them if you can, and spare my own sons as well. Watch over Rob and Bran and Rickon. Would that I were with them. A crack ran down through the mother's left eye and made her look as if she were crying. Lots of great imagery here at the beginning of the chapter, as always. And, you know, coming back to a little bit of what we were talking about at the beginning uh, with Sam's fantastic Twitter thread is, you know, this the stranger as another way or another aspect coded within um, the Seven's religion, the Faith of the Seven, um, that eludes the gender binary. And it, it's pointed that that's there to me in the chapter where Brienne starts to feature much more heavily and, and become part of the plot. And it's a shame to some extent because the that the stranger being outside of these expected gender roles compared to the other six aspects of the faith and representing death, I, I think it's part of what people like they refuse to understand this, and that refusal to understand ends up with Brienne being mistrusted by so many for being that gender outcast. And you know, it's something that Catelyn does come to understand and learn to go beyond. Uh, and because obviously Brienne is very trustworthy, maybe even the most trustworthiest ever. And <laughs> ever. <laughs> I, I, I'm, it's true. It's true. And that those who put on airs of fitting into those societal roles, like Renly and the people in his camp, right? Even though Renly also... Um, doesn't in the way that he's supposed to because he is of course gay which is quite a shame mm-hmm. that he has to box himself into this right um mm-hmm. but the other people in his camp like randall tarley and all those they're not trustworthy those people randall tarley sucks um again <laughs> and i'm sure that this will come back again but it's also a reminder of Arya's storyline and where it's headed since this is a reread and we know it happens with the stranger and the faceless men yeah, I find it so interesting that the stranger 
is so attached to so many feminine storylines, right? Like we're seeing it quite often being just uh, the stranger, Sansa's hair, right? The, her hair net, of course, having the strangler one letter away from the stranger and Arya with her soon to happen, you know, events with the faceless men and Catelyn, Catelyn becoming the stranger, the one that she refused to pray to, the one that, you know, is eluding her. And she says, no, I'm not going to pray to the stranger, uh, to the shadow on the wall. And the shadow on the wall comes in the end of the chapter, mm, yes, right? It comes yes. and takes Renly. So someone should have prayed to that one, huh? Yeah. Oops. It's Oops. a Varys's riddle come to life. <laughs> what is yes, power? The um, of it. Yeah, a shadow on the wall. Oh fuck, not like that. Not like that. <laughs> Varys another gender We have outcast. shadows on the wall at home. <laughs> That's what this one is. It is straight up like, no, no we have a sept at home, Catelyn. You can go to this place with drawings. It, it's such an interesting medium and I love uh of course her prayer, what she says, spare them if you can and spare my own sons as well. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more about some of the Stark sister parallels this chapter, but that does remind me of Sansa and the Blackwater White, uh, especially when it comes to the Hound. It does. Save uh, him if you can. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot, and we've been talking about it, and it really comes through in this chapter too, how connected Sansa and Catelyn's storylines are in A Clash of Kings. I think we've spoken yeah. a bit, like, overall. Maybe we haven't. We should talk about that more eventually. Um, About the connections between Arya and Kat. But, you know, as people pointed out, there are connections between Kat and Sansa. Sansa. Okay, this is this is kind of off topic. But when I read the, that line of, like, they're all sons, everyone. And, you know, protect them for be because they're someone's son. I think of, like, when people are like, yeah, we have to protect these women because they're someone's daughter. That's someone's sister. She's <laughs> someone's daughter, bro. Yeah, dude. What if she wasn't? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would she just be on motherless? Anyways. Uh, so that's what I thought of. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh. Uh, the female gaze. <laughs> Yeah, I I honestly, I think that I see a lot more of the Arya parallels usually, Same. and I see a lot of the Sansa more with Ned, as we've kind of discussed with Eddard's chapters, but yeah. I, I'm definitely seeing a lot of Sansa's Clash of Kings plot specifically mirrored here. Uh, even the terror and, you know, her soon trying to burn her mattress, right, versus this terror of Catelyn hiding the Brienne murder and saying okay Brienne well you're wanted <laughs> you're wanted for murder now I think Brick killed a man with a trident but please just go ahead uh, and go on my peace and good luck and get this criminal Jamie Lannister to get my daughters yeah it's some outlaw shit that's about to go down but uh, just the sneakiness lots of the politics going on and the southern politics happening around them in this land that they don't want to be in and they just want to go home it feels very significant these charcoal drawings I find so interesting for a billion reasons. The first one is, I think that this is not the only time we've seen them. We see it in The Sworn Sword. Uh, in Sir Eustace's lands, he has a sept, and his sept is a thatched one-room sept with crude pictures of the seven scratched upon the walls in charcoal. So that's out in the reach. Not here, not here in the Stormlands, but not that far. Uh, and I'm not sure where this would be, right? Because the closest place to Storm's End is probably Bronze Gate. So Bronze Gate has several smaller towns, probably mm. one of them. Uh, it does interest me that Summerhall is not too far, though. Makes mm. me uh, makes me just 
stroke my chin and go, you guys going to ride by Summer Hall just for a look at the ruins right now? You want to just want to go? But it's it's not as close. I think they're way closer. I think the charcoal is really interesting because in the series, all the references we have with charcoal, there's only like 10 references, and they mostly have to do with fire, right? Charcoal mm-hmm. being made from ash, from fire, from wood. Fits well, but charcoal's not really like a permanent medium, right? It's an easy-to-blend medium, which kind of fits with the lighting and the faces changing and Catalan's eyes. It's impermanent. It's changeable. It's constantly changing. And I love that the flame, right, that the candle flame mm-hmm. helps pronounce the crack across the wall that the mother's face is on. It really highlights that idea of like a mother's sacrifice, whether we talk about Alyssa's tears like we have, uh, or even... Azora High. I'm not I'm not disclaimer a huge Azora High person. You guys have listened to 132 episodes probably maybe ish or enough to know. I don't talk about it constantly, but this comes to mind here. And the Hammer of the Waters also comes to mind. Uh, we talked a few I don't know, a handful of weeks ago back in Catalan's plot about the breaking of the waters and a theory that a nuclear bomb that's been on before has had about possibly the neck really actually breaking off this being what separates physically and literally the north from the south. Uh, The breaking of the waters, we learn a little bit about in Cat 8 in A Game of Thrones, about the hammer of the waters, a Westerosi legend of the children of the forest. The Greenseers use dark magic. They slow the migration of first men to Westeros. Some stories claim they sacrifice thousands of people to the Weirwoods to do so. Kind of crazy. But the Hammer of the Waters results in the breaking and shattering of the Arm of Dorne into the Stepstones and the Broken Arm separating Westeros from Essos, leading to the pact between First Men and Children. Some point later, Greenseers try to use the Hammer of Waters again to break Westeros in two, working from the Children's Tower in Moat Kaelin, but instead they create the Neck. Another reason that crack reminds me of that breaking Moat Caitlin, obviously, that's a very significantly close to Caitlin, to Catalan name. And also the next chapter after this, John is arriving at the Fist of the First Men. So it just feels like there's so much First Men and Children of the Forest energy around, especially in the Stormlands, and especially with those cave drawings from Season 7. Am I right? Hmm. Interesting. You know? Yeah. I don't know, Catelyn seeing that crack across the mother feels like such a reflection of herself in this moment, right? She's physically separated from her children, from her home. The crack across her face measures that distance from her kids, skewed across the broken and war-torn lands, and that sorrow and grief is not unlike the physical hammer of the waters across the land the children had to, you know, separate to save their pack. It's kind of all of this pain and sacrifice she's enduring and that her children are enduring for this cause for the North, for that possible chance at a better life. And it, it really makes me think of the Nisa Nisa myth, because in a way, it does sound like her. She did this thing, why I cannot say, and Azora High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon. The mother's sacrifice is not so far off from Nisa Nisa's sacrifice, and I also think that that drawing is reminiscent of Lyanna Stark and her tears for her children. It feels prominent in this chapter. Interesting. Yeah, I, I love the connections that you've drawn out between the crack and what's going on with the uh, desire for northern independence, right? And, and also how it ties into... Catelyn's very personal familial story and with it being tears yeah it does remind me a lot of 
I mean, Catelyn's fate, right? The very uh, yeah. <laughs> visible tears on her face as she scratches and claws at her, at on down her cheeks, right? Um, those cracks becoming like cracks upon her face. Yeah. And what you're saying about the charcoal, it is interesting that they use this. I think it can be, you know, there there's like fixatives, but I don't know that they had them. Probably not during medieval times yeah. to make it more permanent. But now I'm just thinking like, man, imagine being like the drunk asshole who stumbles into the sept and then accidentally crashes against the wall and you're like oh god or oh god and then you wipe away the face oh no the stranger's on my shirt oh no and then like someone comes in later I know and they're like oh we have to redraw them and then they they do like the you know that now famous person trying to restore the (laughs) well that's kind of depressing right because it's a cheap substance to come across for charcoal Right? Like, you could yeah. get it from most towns that have been burned and sacked by war. Well, the seven aren't faces on a wall. They're inside of all of us. They're in our hearts. They're, They're with the us. friends we made along the way. They might be. <sighs> um, so, the night is still. Besides uh, Sir Wendell and Sir Robar's voices outside of the sept, Kellen thinks the gods even keep their silence tonight, and she wonders if the old gods ever answered Ned when he prayed to them and if they ever heard sad. The faces in the sept flicker in the light, half alive, twisting, much more crude than the statues in the great septs with stone faces, and these faces could be anyone. That's her in the corner. That's Cat in the spotlight. Losing her religion. I mean, it yeah, is kind of. You no, know, this is this is basically. If I, you know, if we named our episodes, if we had a naming convention where we just got to name them something fun, like other podcasts do, it would be losing my religion for sure. Actually, that could just be every chapter for Catalan. I mean, that I say that. what happened to? A crowning happens. <laughs> I liked that. I liked that concept. Alternate titles. Someday we're gonna do like deleted, deleted alternate episodes. Yeah. Uh, well, the father's face made her think of her own father dying in his bed at River Run. The warrior was Renly and Stannis, Rob, Robert, Jamie Lannister, and Jon Snow. She even glimpsed Arya in those lines just for an instant. Then a gust of wind through the door made the torch sputter, and the semblance was gone, washed away in orange glare. The smoke was making her eyes burn when she rubbed at them with the heels of her scarred hands. She rubbed at them with the heels of her scarred hands. When she looked up at the mother again, it was her own mother she saw. Lady Minissa Tully had died in childbed trying to give Lord Hoster a second son. The baby had perished with her, and afterward, some of the life had gone out of father. She was always so calm, Catelyn thought, remembering her mother's soft hands, her warm smile. If she had lived, how different our lives might have been. She wondered what Lady Minissa would make of her eldest daughter, kneeling here before her. (sighs) This is a a lot more than what we've had previously on Lady Minissa. This is probably the most we get on her. It's probably the most that exists, and it's very sad and it kind of reminds me of that thing about Stannis's sword last chapter that when he put his sword away a little bit of the light went out of the mm. world which was also metaphorical because it was like there's gonna be no truce no peace 
but here it, it's a different kind of light that went out of the world. I mean, had she been alive and even to temper Hoster, what could have happened? Especially for Liza, you know, maybe these bonds could have been a little healthier. And I do think there's something in this chapter, in this passage right here specifically, that shows that Catalan could have changed and grown and maybe learned and been more progressive and less systemically misogynistic in terms of Arya and Brienne, which she does grow. Uh, we do see her grow a little bit in terms of that for Brienne, but not just in terms of them, but even in terms of John, She thinks yeah. of him as the warrior here. Even if it's in the same breath as Jamie Lannister, she thinks of Jon Snow. Uh, and I just think, I don't know, I think maybe she could have, she could have been better. She could, you know, she could have gotten better about it if she had been given the chance and if she had been able to go home, had they kept her hostage for some reason, she could have. She might have. I mean, it's not the worst to be said in the same breath as Jamie Lannister. I mean, she does have sexual tension with him. Um, Stop mommy porn, Jamie Lannister porn. <laughs> Which one do you want? Okay. Okay. I remember reading and I was like, what? is this someone's like theories right after a game of thrones uh came out and they had theorized that john would like marry catelyn i was like it's an interesting take hmm. it's an interesting take um, it just might explain his first girlfriend's red hair that's all it might but i was just like i don't i was just like uh well that's not what happens thankfully but i was like damn theories were theories were always wild you know they were always wild and back in my day during the long wait <laughs> yeah well uh no that was a short wait they didn't have much time to to yeah, come that's up true. that was with that true. they had like a year and that was what they put out um but anyways you know i i it's interesting that she does put John with the warrior. I'm like, she doesn't even know if he's that good of a fighter. Just that she was like, yeah, let's send him to the wall. He should go there. Uh, but thinking also earlier of what you were saying about the Azor High connections. And, you know, you can really see that coming through here as the fire, as you were saying, you know, it plays upon the different, the faces, right? And so they're sort of seeing things in a way, almost seeing visions and meditating on them and our friend Alex whom we've already read quite a few of their letters in our coverage of Catelyn uh, was talking in the discord chat about how this scene in the set reminds them of the house of the undying uh, and you know that makes sense both of those being in the same book but I also see a lot in here that reminds me of another house that's associated with death the house of black and white of course in terms of like all of those change those faces within these aspects constantly changing <sighs> yes the face changing oh that's a really clever thought i didn't really put those two together and, and i i like the house of the undying in lieu of that too i like both of those being associated with death and undying here there's a lot of different houses coming through here in this house of god yes well Catelyn's mind is full of all that she has lost, her daughters, Rob's attentions, and of course her connection with Brandon Rickon. She thinks that she wasn't even with Ned when he died, and the set seems to swim around her, the shadows swaying as well. She hadn't eaten anything today, and she was starting to feel it. She told herself that there had been no time, but the truth was that food had lost its savor in a world without Ned. When they took his head off, they killed me too. <laughs> They're killing me right now. I know, right? 
You know, people suspect that Melisandre might be a firewhite because she doesn't really eat or sleep. Uh, and we see that happen to Beric and Kat, of course. And I, I guess the Ice Whites, too, because they don't really show any sort of need for that as well. But as we've discussed the past few chapters, Kat's loss of appetite as life begins to lose its luster for her and the call of death. Um, I mean, it really starts to hammer home. Like, was she... Not saying that, like, you know, grief is... People go through grief, right? But there's there's a lot in there narratively that kind of ties this theme of, like, was she already dead? You know, I mean, she wasn't, but you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. There are a few other moments in this chapter, especially, that just show she's living a lesser quality of life. And it feels, it definitely feels like it's just fleeting, right? Like, life is leaving her and her enjoyment of it. She's turning grayer and sadder and yeah. desperate. Yeah, and it ties it ties well with you know like we were talking a lot about the connections between Cat and Danny in in the first book, right? And it ties into what Miri Mazdor says about Drogo's body of like see what life is worth when all the rest is gone. And I mean, Miri Mazdor has felt that sort of lifelessness. She feels a sort of death as well um, in her grief, seeing the deaths of all of her people and the sexual violence that she endures. So yeah. And as if this guilt and this, like, sadness for life isn't enough for Kat now, the torch spits behind her and the charcoal face on the wall transforms into her sister, Liza. Your sister. (laughs) Yo. And then the eyes change, though. The eyes in the light change. They become harder than Liza's, and she sees Cersei's eyes. Cersei is a mother, too. No matter who fathered those children, she felt them kick inside her brought them forth with her pain and blood, nursed them at her breast. If they're truly Jamie's, Does Cersei pray to you too, my lady? Catelyn asked the mother. The crack is still there across the mother's eye, and she thinks that even Cersei could weep for her children. What a nice, generous thought. I mean, that's pretty generous. She remembers Septon Osmond telling her each of the seven embodies all of the seven, The crone is as beautiful as the maiden. The mother could be more fierce than the warrior if her children were in danger. I love this, uh, especially given Cersei's past, right? And Cersei also, who experiences a lot of that similar gender binary and being stuck into it from society and wants to break free and has gone out dressed up in clothing to, you know, appear as a boy and a lower class boy that worked in the castle just so she could meet Jaime. Also, it was a little bit for sexy, but... It's just interesting to see these connections between them and that even Catelyn in her grief at losing her lover and vice versa for Cersei in her weird twisted way and Catelyn, you know, protecting her children, especially for the worst to come in a storm of swords for both of them for their children. Yeah, and it is interesting because Cersei does have to survive her child, right? Her firstborn and Catelyn doesn't (laughs) because she's only alive for like what? two more minutes yes she's like you're gonna have to fucking kill me (laughs) and it breaks her right because for cersei she wonders would she weep for her children and cersei does she 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 really does she's changed after joffrey's death and interestingly that's when we start first getting her pov and get to know her but prior to getting that intimate look into cersei's life it's fascinating how for both rob and catelyn Cersei is their main villain, right? And she's framed mm-hmm. as such through Ned's chapters as well. As they're like, she definitely killed John Aaron. And Cersei's like, lol. 
I didn't even care about that man. <laughs> She's like, who? And, like, you know, she did have a kind of a hand in Robert's death, but also I'm just kind of like, that's kind of Robert's fault, too. And He and, shouldn't have fucked around. He wouldn't have had to find out. I mean, yeah, and also, I mean, if he, you know, she just gave him stronger wine, but I'm also just like, I don't know, Robert, like, what if, like, you trying to go after that boar was also a bad idea? Like, that's kind of on you, too. There's got to be some personal agency there. Anyway, um, and Cersei did have, like, a hand in Ned's death, more of just in his imprisonment, because Cersei very much did not want Ned to die, as that, you know, jeopardized the fate of Cersei's lover and all that. But anyway... It is interesting to see, you said it was a generous thought, and it is a generous thought, Catelyn trying to find the humanity in her enemies. Like, Cersei's built up to be somewhat of this, like, mean villain towards this part of the book, and or the story, and, you know, maybe she's trying to find that humanity in Cersei out of grief and compassion and empathy, but I think there's also an aspect of trying to find that vulnerability in Cersei. Like, where is her weak spot? Is this someone that we can go up against and, and really win? And it's especially interesting as Catelyn later on loses her own humanity, very, very literally. Uh, Catelyn, <laughs> the chosen undead in Dark Souls, it's a thought. Um, but despite how much these chapters with Cat and Rob and, and even Sansa, right, especially in this book, uh, depict Cersei as that villain, Sansa's are the ones that I think give her the most depth at this point in the story and show the pain she's in. And then in Storm, you find out, like, wait, so... So Cersei didn't do all of those things. That was a bunch of other people. And we find out that she is just as much a victim as she is a villain by mm-hmm. Feast. I mean, she she's still a villain in many ways. First of all, she killed her friend for being into her uh, checks notes. Um, into her brother. Twin brother. Her twin brother. <laughs> this is uh, why she killed her friend. Uh, <laughs> as a child. And and another thing is, you know, where does Catelyn find meaning and joy in motherhood? You know, really embodying those gender roles. And she kind of yearns to be of service to her children, right? To, to be there for Rob. Cersei doesn't really give a fuck what her children think. <laughs> she She's also really weaponized motherhood into a sort of revenge that she takes upon mm-hmm. Robert. That she takes upon the, the other men in her society for trying to pigeonhole her into this and it starts to rear its head for Catelyn uh in this chapter she begins to piece together the same mystery that her own husband did and so coming back to that relationship between Cat and Ned it's another interesting parallel right um that brings Cat close to her husband besides retracing his steps at Storm's End you know following and picking up his detective noir story and where Ned confronts one of the twins again Cersei cat gets her own confession out of the other one but through that lens of motherhood right because of what happened to bran and and wanting to understand what happened to her child whereas for ned it's more about his love for robert and a general sense of protect the kids so yeah yeah they they both have this search for truth and justice and they find it in different ways that both bring them to their doom Right. And Kat's descent here, I love what you've said about Cersei weaponizing motherhood into revenge because that is what Kat's end plot is, right? She dies mm. and is brought back and she weaponizes motherhood into revenge mm, while being yeah. undead. Mother She's merciless. mother merciless. Yeah, yes. absolutely. I think it, it's, it's like so sharp and significant that she just becomes this undead revenge killing 
machine. And I think there's also something in this that as we keep going here, she thinks about Robert's visit to Winterfell and she kind of thinks about, well, Robert didn't really give a shit about Joffrey. If he had known he were Jamie's, he would have been put to death with his mother and not many people would have condemned the act because she thinks bastards are one thing, but incest is monstrous, unless you're a Targaryen. Uh, but it's monstrous, she thinks. And in a way, I wonder, is this also her trying to find some sort of semblance of like maybe justification, working through forgiveness, or trying to to humanize bastardy Jon Snow, mm. too, you know? Interesting. Uh, if Cersei could have these royal bastards with her kin and this ferocious, protective motherhood, could she make do with whatever this mysterious woman who bangalanged Ned and produced Jon Snow? Could she, you know, somehow come to peace with this idea of that bastard if something so awful as these royal abominations exist? That's that's an interesting question and an interesting thought that um, it's her way of trying to, yeah, humanize Jon Snow in her mind because, yeah, I mean, he's not Joffrey, right? We know, We see that so clearly that they're so different and she's like, so the thing, right, that Kat is supposed to value, which is a trueborn, or like mm-hmm. the royals, right, That that's all now just been turned on in his head. She's just like, wait, so that's not real? And So the crown is made up. Yeah, and she's like, well, at least John's not a bastard as far as she knows. And I mean, he's, he's, not. he's, <laughs> not. he's not. He's not. I know people theorize at that. At least he- John's not a royal bastard, Eliana. <laughs> well, no, at least he's not a bastard born of incest is what I was going to say. And and then, I mean, he people theorize that uh, Ned not and Liana were a thing. And no, that is not what happened. And um yeah, so so John's not that, and you know if she sees that these royal bastards, right, Joffrey, mm-hmm. he, he's the embodiment of what one of her fears, right, a bastard stealing the house seat, and also yeah. Joffrey is very clearly a little shit. Like they saw it there, they saw it when they were in Winterfell because Ned's about to say he's like, I don't know that Joffrey boy seems like. He sucks, and that like, and Catelyn knows because she sees it, so she interrupts him, and mm-hmm. she's, she's like, like well, "A nice young boy." She's like, "He's a prince." She's like, "It doesn't matter if he's nice; he's the prince." But now she's probably just like, "Well, at least John's not like that. He's a warrior." But yeah. I mean, she still, she still obviously has her her issues with him because we see those anxieties come mm-hmm. up again during the signing of the will. Yep, the one thing she just couldn't get over. She tried. She came close. I think she came close. She could have almost done it. But if only she would have just thought about the one mother that she hasn't thought about. I guess because she doesn't know she's a mother. I digress. That would solve so many issues. (sighs) She actually, though, like right here, she realizes it all. She realizes Ned must have known and that before him, John Aaron must have known. And she's like, oh, hmm. No wonder the queen killed them. She just kind of like sums it up and is like, yeah, that makes sense. This tracks. Wrong, but right conclusion in some aspects. She wonders if she would do anything less for her own children, feeling her fucked up hand and thinking about Bran and realizing, oh shit, Bran saw something. That's why they tried to kill him. Yep. Um, that turns out to be wrong too, but for different reasons. Um, 
Sometimes you can just chalk stuff up to like simple, simple stupidity and foolishness, turns out. To be fair, it is kind of semantics that it was more just because Jamie was trying to nut, but... Oh, oh no, I meant the, oh, no, the cat's paw. Oh yeah, the cat's paw. No, absolutely. Sorry, I thought we were thinking about, you know, Cersei and Jamie sex. That part, yeah, it was a little, it was a little of both, but then also then the cat's paw, the follow-up, that was just, that was just foolishness. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know... <laughs> a lot of a lot of foolish things, foolish antics, and you know everyone thinks that the Lannisters are so competent. You know here they're like, wow, they took out all these people, but first of all, they failed to kill the little boy. Second of all, they didn't kill John Aaron. Not very competent administration. You know, it's like if the the uh, Schmlintons, which is a name I'm using to hmm, rhyme with a popular family in the United States. You know, if you get on their list, but. Uh, Cersei, like, Cersei's the closest one to competent because their entire their entire family issue is, like, they do it all for the nookie. Each one of them. Tyrion? Yeah. Nookie. Cersei? Nookie. Jamie, Nookie. <laughs> they gotta get it together. They gotta <sighs> stop putting the pussy on a pedestal. Uh, <sighs> poor Marcella. She could have risen above. I believe in that girl. God, those <sighs> poor cats. Pussy. Lost and weary, <laughs> Catelyn Stark gave herself over to her gods. She knelt before the smith, who fixed things that were broken, and asked he give her sweet Bran his protection. She went to the maid, beseeched her to lend her courage to Arya and Sansa, to guard them in their innocence. To the father she prayed for justice, the strength to seek it, the wisdom to know it, and she asked the warrior to keep Rob strong and shield him in battles. Lastly, she turned to the crone, whose statues often showed her with a lamp in one hand. Guide me, wise lady, she prayed. Show me the path I must walk and do not let me stumble in the dark places that lie ahead. Oh. Well, praying for her daughters with Arya's future storyline, again, as a faceless man looming over this chapter, not just as death, but also as an assassin who can slip into places kind of undetected and out of them, or also don different faces like the shadow of course at the end of this chapter who slips in but not like the shadow which cannot change face apparently and just looks like stannis whoops <laughs> um and of course also praying for sansa who has a chapter right before this one and whose fate at court is so tied to her brother's victories which is of course entwined with cat's own chapters and storyline um and sansa's beaten for it and as chloe's pointed out you know sansa's bleeding for the north and Catelyn's praying for the innocence of her daughters, for them to be guarded, and it, it feels like those prayers are only half heard, because the girls, you know, they keep their lives, but a lot of the horrors that they witness and endure at Harrenhal were, you know, ironically, Cat was like, we should not, we should not go to Harrenhal, and also at King's Landing, where Sansa is, it, it chips away at both of these girls' innocence. Not unlike Catelyn's life being chipped away at right now, right? Like oh, we discussed. Wow. Yep. Sad times. The pack is not surviving. Not good. Not good. <laughs> but better than the Baratheons. <laughs> <laughs> so much better because, well, footsteps come behind Catelyn and Sir Robar Royce has come to bring her back to camp. They ride in silence to Renly's camp where ranks of men and horse are armored in darkness. Some amazing prose going on here. Banners are to her right and left, but in the pre-dawn gloom, they just look gray. A great army, Catelyn thought. Gray men on gray horses beneath gray banners. 
so much gorgeous imagery going on here, and it it really brings me to Eddard 10 in A Game of Thrones. Uh, it's described a lot like Ned's fever dream, and it makes that crying cracked mother imagery for Lyanna that much more prominent when you think about the chapter. Ned had known their faces as well as he knew his own once, but the years leech at a man's memories, even though he has vowed never to forget. In the dream, they were only shadows, gray wraiths on horses made of mist. And, I mean, even later, they're said to have shadow spears. I I love just this imagery of the gray shadows. And we have this description of them. The long ranks of men and horses were armored in darkness. Where Storm's End stood was a deeper darkness, a wall of black through which no stars could shine. The shimmering silken walls seemed to glow, Alive with emerald light, the green light shone strangely, so dark it drank the candlelight. He'd have us charge into the teeth of the rising sun. Uh, This imagery is so bold, so, like, prominent. Obviously, it's a lot of imagery about what's about to happen with the actual shadow baby. There's a good amount of imagery here that is straight-up black water, right? This is Mm straight-up emerald light and glowing silken walls. I would argue it's probably foreshadowing for another event where a city is going to glow with emerald, the same city, you know, but later, uh, with wildfire. The Wizard of Oz? Oh. The Wizard of Oz? Look behind the curtain. Look under your chair. (laughs) Look under your chair. And I just think that this is total other imagery, right? Like, if this Mm -hmm. isn't White Walker imagery, imagery for the battle for the dawn, imagery for the longest night, come again. I don't know what will be. This is soldiers cloaked in gray shadows, armored in darkness, pre-dawn gloom, walls of darkness, no stars shining. This is uh, the first mini-long night we'll see. And there is a lot of gray mist in this description. There's a lot of gray mist. We've talked about how that can be Bloodraven peeking in on things. And it's interesting to think that Bloodraven would be watching Stannis kill his brother on purpose. Yeah. I'm like, huh, interesting. I remember dabbling in that. Um <laughs> anyway, um Yeah, I, I think I love what you pointed out with the imagery and it is very, very reminiscent of how the others and the whites are described. Uh but it's also, you know, grey in the way that George is interested in those in between areas of morality. You know, he loves he loves thinking about that and talking about things being gray and and that both the armies have their intentions right and their reasons for being here. And so that that is part of what makes some of it less black and white in terms of morality. <laughs> it's well, either a rotten onion or it's not, Eliana. Get it right. <laughs> no, it's not because I'm not made of money. <laughs> I'm frugal. <laughs> <sighs> I'm like Melisandre. She what does she even know? She doesn't even eat. How does she even, how does she know about onions anyway? Maybe she's never had a good one. That's true. Maybe she's uh, allergic to them. Anyway, a whole new backstory. <laughs> Torches move across the field marking Lord Stannis's camp, but Renly's shadow knights wait in silence, which is kind of funny when we think about the imagery that Renly's knights are the ones that are described as shadows knight as Shadow Knights by Catelyn's perspective here. Because it turns out it's the other side that has the actual Shadow Knights. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's... Uh, the the use of light is so strongly done. It's really well done. He he takes that light right out as the shadow shows up. And 
<sighs> Poor Renly. Poor Renly. Candles are glowing, faintly emerald, and two rainbow guards stand at the door, Sir Parman in his purple, Sir Emin in yellow from Nauticast. With the pavilion, within the pavilion, Brienne armors Renly, and Lord Tarly and Rowan speak of battle tactics. It's pleasantly warm, too warm, if you know what I mean, <laughs> with a dozen small braziers. And Catelyn tells Renly she must speak with his grace. Yes, she even goes so low as to be like, I must speak with your grace. Please just stop being an arrogant ass, Renly. Just for a moment, let's just call it off. And he's like, no, in a moment. Brienne's fitting me with my deep green armor still. And the armor is pretty for what it's worth. It's inlaid gold, green leaves winking back at them. So we haven't dwelled on this much in these uh, chapters recently, but Rob partially does send Cat away, of course, to get her away from the camp, but also considering his other option, right, uh, the Grey John, Cat is a strategic choice to treat with Renly, just as Cat was a strategic choice to treat with Walder Frey, because she is still held in high esteem as a political envoy, even more so now as, you know, the mother of a king, and we see that in how she tries to flatter uh, Renly, right, by giving him the honorifics associated with the king. She didn't do it with Stannis uh, last chapter, um, and she didn't do it with the Renly last chapter or before, right, because she does have a king that she answers to, but it's kind of funny that she uses this, you know, the your grace and stuff, right, when mm -hmm. she's about to ask him to, hey, but what if we all stop being kings? <laughs> yeah, and you brought up the great John, which reminds me, I mean, this is kind of what she tried for right before they all crowned Rob. Uh, and, and to be fair, there's nothing that gets a young king to do something more than saying, bet you won't, <laughs> you know? That's also true. Uh, Especially yeah, seeing that, the way that, that they've been acting. Seeing yeah, the way they've all been, been pretty acting. textbook young boy king. Yeah. You know, all of them. None of them have been, well, I mean, like... Stannis and Renly, you know, in the last chapter, none. No one's shown themselves to be very great politicians, <laughs> except for Catelyn, very true. being very like, true. "I have an idea based on history that is not <laughs> kill your brother." Let's think about it. But anyway, Mathis and Tarly are also really bad influences to have <laughs> they around are. right before battle. They are. They, they're not great. They're trying to convince him to attack before dawn and to you know, break what he said he was going to do to Stannis. And he's like, no, I won't have it said that I won by treachery. We're doing this right. And Randall and Mathis are like, but Stannis chose the time. So it's likely he plans to use the sun to his advantage in combat to blind us. And Renly's like, no, no, Sir Loras's skills are going to break them right away. And chaos will ensue when he does. And we'll get out easy peasy. Chaos kind of, will uh -huh. ensue. At some point. Yep. <laughs> not not for the reason other people think, but, you know, I do appreciate Renly's faith in Loras. You know, Jamie saw Loras as a bit kind of like his younger self, and to some extent it feels like Renly sees Loras the way maybe Cersei sees Jamie as a knight who protects them and a hero who always wins. But I feel like Loras can only do so much. I think, you know, Tarly and Mathis have a, have a good point, but in terms of what Stannis is planning, I also think, you know, it's still... The odds are still very much against Stannis, regardless. So, like, whatever is it worth breaking honor for? For, and I, at least, friendly kind of understands the the look or the the most superficial understandings of honor, and doesn't mm -hmm. do this against Stannis because he says that would be treachery. Uh, because that is a point that's raised in the previous chapter with Sansa, right? That the 
Westerlands are accusing the Northern Camp of using treachery, of using sorcery. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny that Renly ends up actually being the honorable one here, where Stannis is using sorcery and treachery, right? Which I know people will argue that, no, it was justified, but seems kind of like a dick move to me. Um, but... Uh, yeah. Also, I don't, uh, yeah. I mean, like whether or not it's right that both Stannis and Renly kind of stick to this, or that Renly does, right, is part of. I mean, the Lannisters again. We've said this before. Have no such scruples. I think, yeah. but I do think, I do think that. I I mean that in terms of like using treachery, because I do think, uh, Tywin would have waited until this time mm-hmm. said, because, also pride. He wouldn't be like. Oh, yeah. I needed this to win on the battlefield, you know? Well, and to be fair, Stannis was pushed to the point of Tywin with the Red Wedding, right? Uh, it is similar in, yeah. in scale yeah. of, you know, like, ah, I'm going to save thousands of lives by doing this thing, by killing one man. Uh, and it, 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 honestly, the amount of damage you do to the psyche of the people you're trying to win over to your side alone. And there is... Of course, the contention point that Stannis didn't know what was going to happen, people will say, but he knew something was going to happen. He just didn't know what that something was. He knew something negative was going to befall Renly, you know? Yeah. And I mean, like, he was just being irresponsible. I mean, like, Stannis should have pulled out. Maybe Stefan should have pulled out is what you mean. Holy shit. Damn. 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 Okay, you went there. All right. (sighs) Yeah, it's a. I think it's a little naive, obviously, for Stannis to play with fire and think no one gets burnt. He's a big boy, obviously. He made his bed. He has to lie in it, and he will continue to do so. Uh, But Renly, it's just so sad because he just keeps being like, well, when I win, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and I won't have it said we were dishonorable because he wants to win like Robert did, you know, yeah. by being able to pull your enemies off your knees and shake their hands and say, ah, uh, had a good run being a rebel, but why don't we all join up and go save the day now? And he wants to be loved. And yeah. I will say he should have listened to these senior members because obviously Stannis has to do something. Obviously, it's going to have to be something discreet in order for him to do it. But obviously, Stannis, as a guy that's been in a war or two now, knows that he's fucked. Dude, there's like so many people on their way to kill his so very few people. Yeah. So Renly Ridley probably should have considered that Mathis and Co. like know what they're saying here, that Tarly knows what they're saying, because they all are probably sitting there going... Hey, this kid's paying us good, but my God, Stannis isn't stupid. That guy's got to know he's fucked, right? He's got to be planning something. Uh, and unfortunately, it's like there's no exit. You know what I mean? Like, he, they don't know that they're going to die. He's going to die no matter what. That's true. Randley's also in the wrong here, too, because this was this was Randall fucking Tarly and their idea. They're like, yeah, you have to you have to fight Stannis now uh, yeah. or else they're going to people are going to think that you're super weak. And I'm like. There was a good call here, and that was not it. It was go to King's Landing. And then yep. all of this could have been avoided, and we wouldn't have to like be potential kin- kinslayers. Because, I mean, it it's is kind of- It's damn ego. It's it's like a pretty shitty move to also be like, yeah, we're going to kill my brother in this battle. And to be like, by with it, you know, like, mm-hmm. I forgot who, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, whoever said it. But someone 
you know, in reaction to the previous episode, said that Stannis, you know, extending those really, really good-ass terms, uh, maybe it was Maddie, um, those great terms to so. Renly is also, I mean, that's also emulating Robert, right? Because you were talking mm-hmm. about how Renly wants to, the victory like Robert and wants to be the one to bring enemies to their knees, from their knees to their feet like Robert and that's those what generous Stannis terms, terms were, that, yeah. were that, yeah, yeah. That was his display of Robert, and mm-hmm. yeah, they uh, their egos got in the way. I mean, if they hadn't let those big old egos start flapping around and get in the way, they could have done something here. They really could have done something. But they both could have been loved if they had just said "I love you" to each other. Oh my God, ooh woo! I know that sounds oh, dumb, whoa. but what if that's kind of? I think that there's actually truth in what I said. I do think there's a point to that. Like, I think that is kind of the point. I don't have siblings. Eliana doesn't have siblings. We don't, we don't want know. them. Please don't, don't give know. us your siblings. We don't want them. We can't actually speak for siblings in the United States, in the world, in the United Worlds of the galaxy that we live in. We in the United Nations. Look, new countries pop up every day in our statistics, and I'm just waiting. Wait until Elon Musk gets to his moon or whatever. <laughs> Every day. (sighs) Well, there's something really interesting going on, almost performative. Brienne is strapping Renly in still, right? And this is the big big to-do before dawn, before the whole shebang goes off. So Brienne is strapping him in very ceremoniously, and Renly commands them to see no insult is done to Stannis' corpse. He is his blood, and he will not have his head paraded on a spear. Mm, yep make it a lot of terms for a guy that's been getting dressed for 25 minutes for battle you know uh (laughs) i digress i mean it is pretty disrespectful as we end up seeing in the the next book yeah i mean and of course he won't have his head paraded on a spear runley's armor is going to be paraded though still and of course i find it so fascinating that he just keeps making these comments of all the things that's about to happen to his ass (sighs) <sighs> yeah and then of course lord tarley's like what if he yields what if stannis yields and rowan and renly are like ha 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 belly laugh uh. <sighs> when mace tyrell laid siege to storm's end stannis ate rats rather than open his gates near the end sir gowan wild and three knights tried to steal out a postern gate to surrender stannis caught them and ordered them flung from the walls with catapults I can still see Gowan's face as they strapped him down. He had been our master at arms. Feels like there's something there that uh, some of these people that lived in the castle and worked in the castle and were like basically second family members for these parentless children seem to be the problem here. That they're like, oh, I can see their faces in our heads. I mean, the They've betrayal. Lived with me. Yeah, the betrayal of people who are, have worked in the castle and are kind of like your family members, right? I think it ties in well with what happens in Theon's storyline in just yeah. a moment where he's going around like just fucking shit up for the people that he grew up <laughs> around. And he's like, gonna do a bad job beheading you now. <sighs> so. uh, yeah, absolutely. That and of course, Courtney Penrose. Uh, uh, yeah, that guy. That was That was really the one I was thinking, but I didn't think of that. There's a lot. There's a lot of that in this book, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And so Rowan comments, he's like, I don't remember men being hurled from the walls. 
And Renly says, that's because Cresson told us to keep them in case they were forced to eat their dead. No sense in flinging good meat, he said. Had the Onion Knight not delivered onions, they would have had to dine on corpses. It was a very close call, too close for some, like Gowan Wilde, who died in his cell. Wild. Um, so I do believe parts of the story that, that Gowan Wilde tried to sneak out and starved in the dungeons and was potentially kept to be eaten. I'm unsure about whether or not Sanus ordered Gowan Wilde and them flung from the walls or not, or if it's something like Renly said for shock value, or I mean, it, it, it could be a half truth, right? Like the way that it's delivered, which is why Rowan's like, I don't remember that happening. Because that mm -hmm. makes it seem like it's a lie, right? That makes it seem like, Renly, you made this up to make Stannis seem bad. But I mean, it, it could also be the truth, right? He says it for, you know, that, that shock value and Stannis maybe did order it. He doesn't say Stannis did it. And then we find out what really happened. Um, but yeah, it just kind of makes Renly seem even more gray. And that threat, though, of cannibalism during the siege does ring true to me. It does seem like something that Stannis probably did because it creates this narrative cohesion uh, with the present day storyline and his refusal to give in, which has once again led to people starving. And now the threat is not a threat, but turns out a reality because we do see cannibalism in his camp. Exciting. I think it's so interesting that Stannis goes north where cannibalism becomes a thing again for his camp. Yeah, uh, and he d he says he does it out of duty. We know my feelings. We don't have to go into it, but he goes north, and you know they go through their supplies. He has nothing left. But Renly, who did not learn the same lessons as Stannis from that same event, has placed those supply lines far away. So even if Renly survived this evening and survived the battle with Stannis, I mean, they might have ended up having some issues with food supply, right? Like we mentioned last episode, and uh, I think it's so interesting that Stannis, this happens because of environment, and Renly, this happens by choice. I think that shows mm. a lot about their characters here. Interesting. Yes, definitely. Catelyn's patience is wearing out, and she reminds Renly he promised her a word. He commands his men to see to their battles, and if they find Barristan, spare him. They tell him there's no way Barristan's with Stannis, but Renly's like, Barristan will only support who he thinks is a rightful king. He hasn't been seen with any other kings, and Renly, girl, I'm here to say that is because no one ever looked for a girl, bitch. Yep. They yeah. really didn't. I mean, Robert thought, maybe we should look for the girl, but to kill her. Um. <laughs> who would have known Robert was kind of right for his own reign? Every oh. once in a while. <laughs> Robert, what if we killed the children? <laughs> anyway. The children all die anyway. They give Renly their word, bowing out, and Brienne cloaks him. This is a great wedding. Cloaks him in a heavy cloth of gold cloak with the crown stag of Baratheon flaked on it in jet. This is gorgeous. It sounds it's very. Cool. It's a. It's definitely a statement piece. It is. It sounds cool. I mean, like, it's it's a lot, maybe too much, but it sounds cool. <laughs> kind of interesting to look at that versus the threadbare cloak that Marjorie gets when she marries Joffrey. Mm. Or Sansa's. That's true. That's true. Well, I guess the Great Helm doesn't really make a difference in battle. I mean, I don't really know. 
I've never, you know, <laughs> been in battle either. As well as never having siblings, never been in battle. <laughs> but I, it must not be that bad because Robert also had one, and it sounds like his helm was also similarly impressive. And all the fan art I see has like pretty big antlers, so clearly this wasn't like a detriment, I guess. Um, <laughs> but the heavy cloth, as cool as it sounds. For fashion, seems pretty fucking useless in in battle. I mean, I've seen the you know the no capes, the no capes thing from The Incredibles, and that must probably apply here. Like, it almost feels like Renly isn't taking the battle seriously, and like this cloak, especially if it's heavy, is more of a hindrance than it is a help. And you know, the, this whole armoring scene actually reminds me of another Catelyn chapter of Catelyn in the Vale during the trial of Tyrion and in fact uh, much of this chapter feels a little bit of like a rehashing of that with you know you've got the picture perfect knights who are in the ceremonial armor like Renly of course against Stannis's much smaller troops who seemingly have no chance but they are cunning as pointed out by using the dawn to gain every single advantage that they can get which is what Bronn does and I mean I, I don't think Stannis's army had a chance like, it, it was really small um, oh, it would have been over. <laughs> it would have been like a bloodbath, but that's but why he, he literally made the shadow baby. <laughs> I know, right? He he does win, and he wins because of that using sorcery, which is kind of funny again in the context of the Sansa chapter preceding this, where they're like, no one uses sorcery during war. They're like, mm, but what if they did? Anyways, <laughs> um, but but even the Northern campaign for independence, right? It's a lot like that trial in the Vale, just as this this moment is, as everyone underestimates Rob and the Northerners who keep winning same as Bronn does yeah and and they have a much more simplistic fashion you know so i think that has something to do with it no statement pieces like this cloak or like the armor or like the greaves or like the boots or like the <laughs> crown it, or like the <laughs> sorry do you want me to pick a piece <laughs> pick one you know couture. you're supposed to focus on one if you're going like top heavy, you're supposed to go light on bottom and vice versa. I'm just like Renly. Who, unless, what are you trying to prove? Unless it's like for you know, it's a runway statement, which I guess, I guess this is it a runway could be. event. It could be. Yeah. Right? If if tourneys are like festivals, then the first battle of a super big dynastic kin slaying event is like fucking I don't know fashion week. I think. Anyways. So. <laughs> Well, in par with all the drama, all the flair that Renly is bringing in this outfit, Kat brings the drama because she gets her big moment to reveal the Lannisters are trying to kill Bran, and they tried hard when they were here. I didn't realize it until Stannis brought it up, <coughs> which is, okay, also, you shouldn't have led with Stannis. You know, you should have been like, I didn't realize it till you were speaking and Stannis said a thing, but mm. you were speaking, Renly. And <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, she tells him Jamie and Cersei remained at Winterfell while the other men went out on a hunt. Renly is like, ah, yes, I know what it's like to sneak around with a lover. Go on. She begs him to let her go to Stannis to tell him these suspicions and that if the men will set their crowns aside, she knows that Rob would do the same. She hopes that's true in her head and in her heart. I have to say, this could have been okay one book ago, but that's a pretty big assumption for Catelyn to make. Uh, just as northern independence has outgrown Sansa and Arya's safety as priority. Uh, as we're about to get around to, all of this did start because of Bran and Ned, but 
now it's more than just Ned and Bran and Sansa and Arya. Now it's the men of the North, right? And their their search for justice and independence. And I don't know that they would put their crown aside. I don't know they would let Rob set it down. I don't think so either. I don't know that they could. I mean, there is a chance. I, I think there's a non-zero chance, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing that it they wouldn't have to bow to the Lannisters because the line is illegitimate. At least with yeah. that out of the picture, there's a non-zero chance, but it would be quite hard. Yeah, it, it makes a foundation to start from. And that's where this next passage, I think, is... is stood out like a mm-hmm. big old boulder like I just tripped over it as I read it I was like holy shit let the three of you call for a great council such as the realm has not seen for a hundred years we will send to Winterfell so Bran may tell his tale and all men may know the Lannisters for the true usurpers let the assembled lords of the seven kingdoms choose who shall rule them Renly laughed Tell me, my lady, do direwolves vote on who should lead the pack? That literally just happened. <sighs> I mean, yeah, like someday in the 15th book. No, I'm just kidding. Well, that happened uh, the end of the first book. Right. I mean, that is the whole thing, right? Like, they kind of do. The, the They might not all be direwolves, but the North voted for this 15-year-old to lead them. They were like, I would rather this kid who can barely grow hair on his neck lead us instead of the Iron Throne. They were willing to say that publicly in front of a lot of other people and risk their reputation and their thoughts on it. So it turns out they chose a really badass 15-year-old. I'm going to put that caveat in. Like, yeah. they got real lucky. You know, other people yeah. don't get stuck with good 14, 15-year-olds they get stuck with. Joffrey. Uh, I mean, the South thought Renly had the best chance, right? And they went with him against Stannis. He was the more attractive option, best option on the table, uh, but it, it wasn't like a voting experience really for anyone. The North even wasn't really close to voting. And I, I do think this is major foreshadowing. Uh, I think that this is what we'll see in the end game of Thrones, right? A great council, such as the realm has not seen for a hundred years, will send to Winterfell so Bran may tell his tale. Uh, we'll get that chance someday. Bran will get his chance to tell his tale once he's come to fully understand and see all of it. Yeah, I mean, once he's been willing to face his trauma about it, right? Um, yeah. Which and who has a better has story? Oh my god. Um, but I, I agree with what you're saying. It is. It does really stand out now um, after watching the award-winning hit television series Hand that the books are based HBO upon. Series. Yeah, that the books are based upon Game of Thrones. Uh, this does stand out, and it's it's kind of funny to think about also in the context of we were talking about the Bloodless Revolution. A few mm-hmm. chapters ago where they also called like a parliament together to be like so what do you think who should uh, maybe rule mm-hmm. it seems like george has been thinking these things thinking about councils every now and then especially when you look at how he's been building out things in fire and blood so clearly yes it's on his mind but it, as you said it's interesting that catelyn of all people is the one who also suggests it you know speaking of her own political acumen but also it, it feels like a very mastery you know Mm-hmm. kind of suggestion it feels very academic um but it's also you know her her last plea for we can still yeah, make this whole thing fucking work if our point is to get the lannisters out right she's thinking of cersei at the beginning and she's like this is just we just gotta get them out then we can figure it all everything later on 
Yeah. And unfortunately, later just keeps becoming later. And for these guys, they don't care. That's not the point for them. And I think that's made clear. Yep. That <sighs> is... It is not. Uh, Brienne brings Runley's crown, which, again, it's those, those stag horns. It's a foot and a half tall. And also brings his gauntlets. And Runley says, it's time to be done with this nonsense talking. Catelyn <laughs> begs him in the name of the mother. But suddenly, a gust of wind flings open the tent. Look under your chairs. A shadow oh crawls the wall, lifting its sword black on green as Renly begins his final jest. This happens so fast. Like, one mm, moment, yeah. Renly's just putting his armor on for 25 minutes, and then the next moment, he's dead. And And I do have to highlight, I love that black on green. Right? Yeah. Just like the blacks versus the greens. And, and the, the princess water. and the queen. Yeah, and the black water. Where this armor comes back up. Cold. Said Renly in a small, puzzled voice. A heartbeat before the steel of his gorget parted like cheesecloth beneath the shadow of a blade that was not there. He had time to make a small, thick gasp before the blood came gushing out of his throat. You're great. No! cried Brienne the Blue, when she saw that evil flow, sounding as scared as any little girl. The king stumbled into her arms, a sheet of blood creeping down the front of his armor, a dark red tide that drowned his green and gold. More candles guttered out. Renly tried to speak, but he was choking on his own blood. His legs collapsed and only Brienne's strength held him up. She threw back her head and screamed, wordless in her anguish. Catalan knows instantly this is dark magic, this is evil. Renly did not cast that shadow. Not unlike the Daenerys shadows that we talked about at the end of A Game of Thrones here. I'm definitely mm. reminded of that as well, the shadows in the tent. Yeah, oh, great point, great point. Moments pass before Robar, Royce, and Emin Kai burst in, seeing Renly dead in Brienne's arms, drenched in his blood. Sir Emmon calls her wicked and vile, but Robar is a little sadder and kinder, and is like, why? Why, Brienne? Why'd you do it? And before anyone can give her a chance to be like, I didn't do it. Emmon is about to fuck her up with a battle axe for killing the king, and Catelyn screams, no, but it's too late, because she, she was just too shocked there. And the men are all riled up and ready to kill Brienne, and Brienne is quick as hell, though. She takes Renly's sword from its scabbard, because her own is too far, catching Emmon's axe as it swings down. And she's very impressive. Catelyn's like, oh, I didn't know she was this good. Uh, <laughs> Brienne sends his bat, his axe head spinning, and another man thrusts a torch at her back, but her cloak is too wet to catch fire wet with blood and i almost Ugh. am like this kind of reminded me a little of uh, the relores i'm trying to i don't know why this is what made me think of relores i'm trying to catch in westeros right but it can't mm -hmm. truly stamp out or kill the faith of the seven which has so much blood already invested in it so much faith anyway the second man at arms lunges and they dance and when emin comes wading back Brienne retreats, but she keeps them at bay. I have to point this line out because I have not laughed. Oh, I, I, I belly laugh. This <laughs> was such laughed? a gut laugh. No. On the ground, Renly's head rolled sickeningly to one side and his second mouth yawned wide. 
The blood coming from him now in slow pulses. (laughs) Were you guys not laughing? It was just so like, I could just see the chocolate syrup blood just coming out of his throat. Uh, And and it's just embarrassing. It's just so fucking funny because his body's right there while they fight. Even in the afterlife, he's just like laying there in the middle and he gets pushed aside at some (laughs) point. Like someone kicks him aside, it's said. Which I just, I'm like, there's your king. Like, there's the man you're all fighting over. No one's gonna pick him up and lay him somewhere. Y'all are just gonna battle Axa. Okay. All right. Good luck. World star shit happening in this tent. I mean, how big is is this tent? This is is like the fucking Goblet of Fire tent that Arthur Weasley has for the thing. It's huge. Yeah, it is. Remember, like, Catelyn, like, comes into it and she's like, what the fuck is this pavilion? <laughs> it's wow. like super nice, you know? It's, it's Someone real big. really gave Renly a huge ass Home Depot gift card. It was they the did. Tyrells. It was. I mean, it's like. It was a wedding present. Circus tent, huger. I don't know. It's probably smaller than that, but like. So big. It's just and like. It's a circus in here, you know? Wow. Th- there's your House of the Undying connection. Because it's just so big and there are probably so many doors in this huge ass tent. <laughs> Who knows which one to go down? Go down this one. It gives you death. Oh my <sighs> god. It does though. <sighs> Robar Royce hangs back and he's uncertain. He's about to go in after Brienne and get fighting. Catelyn seizes his arm, begging him to help them and understand it was Stannis who did this, not Brienne. Honestly, it's remarkable that this works, but I will say I love the language here as Catelyn comes to find the explanation that it was Stannis, and it it was. We're going to find out in the next Davos chapter. It was, indeed, Stannis. Um, and so so the quote goes, You do her wrong. It was not her. Help her. Hear me. It was Stannis. The name was on her lips before she could think how it got there, but as she said it, she knew it was true. I swear it. You know me. It was Stannis killed him. So the aspect of the name being on her lips before she could think it, but then she knew immediately it was true. It, it really highlights Catelyn's intuition and reflects a moment from her own daughter's chapter that is just before this one of, I would sooner return to my own bed. A lie came to her suddenly, but it seemed so right that she blurted it out at once. This tower was where my father's men were slain. Their ghosts would give me terrible dreams and I would see their blood wherever I looked. So wherever, whereas Catelyn's intuition helps her immediately recognize the truth and what she saw, Sansa's helps her find a lie, a lie that is based in truth, but it's made stronger, right? It's still a lie, though the way that these scenes are written, so, like, it, it feels interesting how similar, like, to me, those moments are. Yeah, there, there's so much with Sansa in this, and, and there's actually something in this True Night thing going on akin mm. to Sansa and Dantos yes, right now, yes. of her playing the lady and him the knight, her begging him to save her, take her away. Even in literally the chapter right before this, Sansa is given protection from the enemy that she doesn't want, from Tyrion. He gives her the stone crows or says, asks, you know, do you want the stone crows? And it's kind of similar to Catelyn being forced to stay a hostage under Renly's men here, under watch and key by them. Uh, and, and there's also something very akin to Arya at Harrenhal, I would argue, that uh, she leaves everything in chaos there, right? Or even mm. before then, on the road with the death of Lamy or Yorin, 
and of course, poor Robar Royce, uh, the true knight. I-, I think there's just so much here of true knights or people that are actually doing the right thing, dying for these Starks one by one. But just like Arya, and a bit similar for Sansa, we've talked about Catelyn kind of losing that light and life within her, and Arya and Sansa are both being desensitized as we go along as well. Catelyn's memory of Robar, after he dies here, it goes from rainbow to colorless. He doesn't even come back into her memory after this. And hmm. her losing that appetite, that humanity, that religion, that faith. It, it's just so sad. It reminds me a lot of, like I said, Eddard's chapters in the end. Uh, with, with carrying that torch of feeling your faith leave you and feeling like you're trying to do the right thing. But the right thing is hard. Uh, and... There's just so much adjacency of the ghosts of the past in this chapter and the ghosts of the now happening in front of your eyes. And Catelyn seeing this different child, this young girl, Brienne, caught in the bloodshed of a man that she loved. And it gets harder and harder to stick to your oaths and your vows. Catelyn spends a lot of this compartmentalizing and putting things into kind of buckets that like, well, we'll just come back and deal with that later. But there's no later for her. You know? Yeah. There is no later for her. It's not lost on me, too, that she says, you know, take my word, asks him to take her word and her name as a pledge. Yes. And it does not work that way on the phrase later. That's a great point, probably because they they broke that word later, but, uh... Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. probably because of that vow, but... They were like, what is your name worth when you when you break your vows? But here, Catelyn, I mean, it hasn't been sullied yet, right? She still uses it, and she, she puts a lot of... She puts so much um, emphasis on it, and, you know, you said she uses the name, she uses the Stark name, and so it really kind of shows that pride she has in that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that coming Especially up, for the Royce Royce's. here... Yes, yeah. a Royce saving a Stark... There's an abundance of Royces in the Vale right now. Just putting it out there. Could Sansa turn to a Royce in the Vale? I think so. I think so. That's Hopefully true. it's turning to Randa and their BFFs. Just kidding. That's probably not going to happen. I mean, I, I like the idea of it. I don't know. Like, Randa's just kind of older. I don't really see myself, you know. I don't know. When I was 21, I just, like, wasn't going to be, like, best friends with, like, a 14 or 15-year-old. Yeah. You not know? with a 15-year-old with better titties than me. Come on now. <laughs> Apparently. That is how it's all described. But, I mean, even, like, the the whole Royce thing, it does also come again, right, to, you're talking about these true knights, um, Waymar Royce, all the way in the prologue. Yeah, with and, John. Yeah, and, yeah, how, like you said, tying to John, but also just, like, you know, doing the right thing in the face mm-hmm. of weird, evil sorcery. Yeah, and they were raised uh, well. They were, you know, ultimately. Sometimes they lose their way and can be a little a little foolish, but ultimately. Before Robar dies, he stares at Catelyn with <laughs> his pale it. eyes, and she explains the shadow to him that she has no clue how, but knows that it was Stannis. And she says, a shadow with a sword. I swear it, I saw. Are you blind? The girl loved him. Help her. More shouting starts outside. Angry men are about to burst in. Catelyn gives her word, and he says he'll hold them off, giving time to slip away. Meanwhile, Emin is pressing on Brienne, and he kind of forgot about Catelyn, lost in his bloodlust, until Catelyn brings out an iron brassiere down on his helm, pausing him for just long enough for them to escape. 
out of the green silk and into the darkness. I love that. I feel like Catelyn, you know, gets mischaracterized as weak because she's ladylike, but she's not soft, though. She isn't. She she shows the same physical courage here that she did when the cat's paw came for Bran, which, you know, is a chapter that ties heavily into this one because of all the stuff that we've already talked about this episode. Um, and it gives Brienne a chance to recover, right, before Catelyn's own calm during all this madness which allows them to escape you know she flinches right at the beginning when she's like what the fuck is happening why are people fighting which to be fair is also kind of the theme of, is also kind of what happened last chapter yeah. um <laughs> what the fuck why are people fighting but here you know she she comes together real fast and is able to make their way out yeah, and, you know, we see a lot of that kind of physical prowess translate to Arya's story and some of the things that Arya does is a much more physical-minded and physical-act character. But I am thinking about Sansa in the chapters with Liza, and when Liza tries to take her down out the moon door, Sansa grabs Liza and, like, is like, uh-uh, I'm taking <laughs> you down with me. Uh, Kat taught them to scrap, you know, she she taught them to mind your body. Don't let anyone put hands on you, girls. I gotta respect that. I gotta respect that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. She shows that. Catelyn urges Brienne, all right, when we escape, you gotta walk. Wow. You gotta walk easy and slowly. Or they're gonna question why we are in such a hurry and leaving. All right, you just gotta (laughs) act like everything is normal. (laughs) Everything's fine. And so, yeah, no one stops them, though men begin to run past. Speaking of sorcery and murder, and some are praying and some are openly sobbing. Uh And this is just a redux before Blackwater and a redux before dragons in Westeros. That's true. Well, we have this passage of the night fires had burned low, and as the east began to lighten, the immense mass of Storm's End emerged like a dream of stone, while wisps of pale mist raced across the field, flying from the sun on wings of wind. Morning ghosts, she had heard old Nan call them once. Spirits returning to their graves, and Rendley, one of them now, gone like his brother Robert, like her own dear Ned. Grey mist. Just saying. Indeed. <laughs> Watching me like, what a shit show. <laughs> is he eating popcorn? Morning ghost. <laughs> is he eating popcorn? <laughs> Blood Raven is sitting there yeah. in like a marabou. He's probably like wearing the uh, Titus Blackwood collection right now in the cave. <laughs> yeah, he's like, ooh, this reality TV. <laughs> Oh my god. So <sighs> sad. It's actually real sad. These parts are yeah. sad. Of, you know, Brienne quietly lamenting that she never got to actually really hold Renly except for in his dying moments. And her voice is soft and sounds like it could break at any moment. And she remembers him laughing during one moment, then blood everywhere. And, and she just doesn't understand what's happened. And uh, it's just so poor Brienne, you know, she was seen as guilty because of the blood on her cloak, but she was innocent and she ends up being accused of being a Kingslayer as, as a member of the Kingsguard, uh, the Rainbow Guard, but it, it's the same thing, just rebranded. And, and it's, as you were saying, right, when we were talking about those true knights, it's a real physical embodiment of, you know, highlighting Brienne's own adherence to knightly virtue because we see that the King's Guard in King's Landing, the Tyrion mocks them. 
uh, when he's telling them to stop beating Sansa, a little girl, for her own brother's like victories on the field, like a bazillion miles away, lest they get blood on their own white cloaks, uh, mm-hmm. which are pure and clean, whereas Brienne's stained, but she's innocent. Anyway. And of course, there's obvious Sandor thoughts. I'm not going to go into Sandor thoughts during this because I feel like someday when we get to Brienne, there's just so many great parallels to break into it. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll withhold for them sure. for now. But oh, okay, thank you for your uh... <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> Catelyn tells Brienne what she saw: a shadow. At first, she thought it was Renly's, but then she realized it was Lord Stannis, and she says that she knows it makes no sense at all. But Brienne is like. Good enough for me. Let's kill Stannis. I'll kill him. I'll kill him with my lord's own sword. I swear it. I swear it. I swear it. Yes. I love the repetition of, like, I swear it. I swear it. Like, that that three times. It really kind of evokes that this is a holy vow, you know, when you swear something three times. So there's another kind of, maybe this is sorcery also, right, in in response to the, the other sorcery. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, well, if you don't get episode 133, now you all know why. <laughs> um, rip. Rip. <laughs> Not just Renly, but me, too. Oh, wow, a crowding. Uh, wow, my God. Uh, I, I didn't even think of that as like a vow or as a, her own kind of curse, and I love that as, as thing, these right? witchy women. No, it is, and... Especially because the last chapter, Sansa gets accused, you know, of her brother's witchcraft and of kind of being a witchy woman herself. Catelyn uh, obviously lives with it, and Brienne has lived with this feeling for so long, too, of being kind of othered or made to be this separate person as someone not very representative of what the perfect person in society should be. Uh, And I I don't know, I didn't think about that as like a, a curse, and I love it. I love that, that she's totally putting a curse upon Stannis there, or a vow to get him. A vow for sure, because we know that Brienne is all about vows and oaths. And you you know, you were talking about witchy women, and there is, of course, a witchy woman hanging over this entire chapter. Who, yes. Melisandre, of course, and when we were talking about weaponizing motherhood, I mean, literally that. Yeah, she is literally weaponizing motherhood through her womb in this yeah the witchcraft yep. and, and the religious son. the transition that's, yeah right that is someone's son someone's son oh my god the transition to of religion in this starting with the the shadows on the wall literally and moving into the shadow off the wall here uh mm. that's definitely wall. interesting yeah. yeah off the wall like tony hawk oh and I, I i do have to say George based this on the show the books are based on, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, sure. Because this right here is based on season five for Brienne, where she kills <laughs> Stannis. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, real talk. I don't know. I I was always of the mind with the bad show that season five Brienne might have been mildly out of character in killing Stannis. I feel this way because it doesn't make great logistical sense, right? I think I am of the belief that Stannis is going to sacrifice Shireen at the Night Fort, and I think that Brienne's plot doesn't involve her moving north till the end of The Winds of Winter. That doesn't make it impossible. Uh, I, I think she has to hook up to go north somehow. Maybe it's Arya, Sandor, whatever, some sort of craziness that gets her north. I wonder if her plot 
And her interfacing with Jamie and different characters on the way, and her interfacing with oaths and vows and keeping oaths and vows, is actually going to be about the opposite. Is going to be about her putting aside this vengeance against Stannis, because she doesn't really think of him much uh, in her own POV chapter. She thinks about him probably like one time and thinks that he was right about the incest. We'll definitely talk about this more someday in Brienne chapters, but I I am curious to see what bits of vengeance for Renly really stick with her, right? After all she's been through and all of the different tasks that she's taking on as a knight, uh, right now she's growing. And who she is, not only as a young person, but as a knight, is going to change, especially by the end of the story. And things take much different meaning to her now, in this Mm -hmm. chapter even, than they would a week ago when she was trying out for Renly's cheerleader squad. You know, like, literally, his entire little tourney there to get his last king's guard member or to get well not that wasn't the point but for brienne it was but that tourney is like every cw show when they cast for a cheerleader tryout scene you know when they're like oh no how are you gonna survive the bitchy other cheerleaders punk rock main character that's what it was yeah i don't know i don't know where it's gonna go with a. Uh... Brienne's character. I do think this is meaningful that it is sworn three times, but also I'm like, I mean, I'm not about to get my hands bloody for some guy who didn't care about me. (laughs) Well, and that's kind of one of the things we learn, right, through, like, young adulthood. Being I'm serious. Like, I'm half joking here, but, like, I am serious. Like, I think that is a part of her character, especially in how she will interface with Jamie and grow with him, right? And Obviously, they might not have a super happy ending together, but she's going to learn from that experience and learn more about what she wants and also what defines her and what she wants to be as a knight, as someone who protects others. Yeah, learning what it looks like when someone actually gives a fuck versus when they don't. Yeah. While they reach the Northerners, who are waiting with horses, asking what happened, and Catelyn explains, so there's not going to be a battle... King Renly is dead, but but not by our hands. And so the escort just forms around her, and she's like, "We're gonna just, we're gonna go, we're gonna go." And directs Brienne to, you know, just take him out of your choosing. We've brought more than enough. And Brienne's like, "I have to go get my armor and my own horse." And Catelyn's like, "No, we've gotta go now. All right, before anyone thinks to look for us, because people know we were in that tent." <laughs> and then Catelyn commands them all to ride, and she's like, if anyone tries to stop us, cut them down. <laughs> right. Bossy shit going on. Cat uh, is definitely playing, like, commando in this chapter, and I love it. She is head honcho, head honchess, if you will. <laughs> and her being like, if anyone tries to fuck with us, kill them. If they fuck around, they will find out. But this is actually a really sad little passage and very symbolic Hmm. like that's Brienne's armor that's her armor that she wore as she got her spot on the Kingsguard her cosplay for Runley's squad she worked really hard to have it to wear it to hold it uh harder than a lot of the other people on Runley's squad did as well as bearing twice the shame and mocking that they did to get the job but yeah The reality is that this is that price of being a knight and being a true knight. And we see this often through Dunk, right? Her uh, ancestor who lives from hedge to hedge, lord to lord, horse to horse, sword to sword, being willing to know 
what is actually important, a piece of sheet metal or your life and soul? And I, I find it so interesting that Brienne's sword here is highlighted that she took Renly's sword. Uh, we'll have to kind of follow that through the book when she gets rid of it, if he just kind of gardened it away, weeded it away. Because when Jamie and her meet, and when Jamie is then returned to his wealthy resources later for a bit, he presents her that piece of stability, right? For someone who has had to start at the bottom as a knight again in feast, Oathkeeper. And that's where I think that change in that translation is going to come from what Stannis means to her, because the oaths that define you as a knight change as you change, and Brienne is changing and becoming herself as she grows, right? Like, she's growing into the person she's going to be in these experiences that are shaping her. So I I've got to kind of look at that sword again, because there really isn't a lot about her sword besides... I think it's just, is that the one that he's fighting with and he loses? Jamie, is that the one that they fight? Like, Oh, Renly's sword? Yeah. Maybe. I, I don't know. I, don't I feel like know. George just gardened that sucker away, huh? High gardened it away. Sorry. <laughs> he high gardened. I'd like to be high gardening it away, too. To be fair. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's, a, that's really interesting. And, you know, one day, one day we'll dig into that. But, you know, digging back into Catelyn's character, right, we were touching on this a little before, her her calm and absolute clarity and like, all right, here's how we're going to get out of the tent. And now here's how we're going to get out of the camp. And I love how you're pointing out, you know, her her leadership during this moment of, and also kind of ruthlessness, right? And, and the need mm-hmm. to be in terms of the pragmatism of getting out. And she orchestrates her own escape, very much like Arya kind of orchestrates her own escape. Arya's is much more bloody, right? But her escape from Harrenhal. And I kind of wonder, you know, Sansa also has her own escape too, right? Which parallels Catelyn's in some ways in that, you know, Catelyn is at a place where she seems very guilty and suspicious of killing a king. She seems uh, very, very implicated. And Sansa, uh, when she finally gets a chance to make her escape from King's Landing, it is during a time when there is also much hubbub. All right, there's a lot of chaos because another king has died. And she actually is kind of implicated, though. (laughs) She is mildly, mildly brought into this uh, and has has been used as an accessory in murder. Which, because of her own hair accessories, so she probably doesn't like that very much, but also implicated. Um, and so I wonder, you know, we're, we're seeing both of these, both of Catelyn's daughters making escapes, same as she does in, you know, similar s- circumstances. And we're probably going to see them do a couple more. I wonder if we'll see Sansa one day grow into being like, all right, everyone, we're just going to go cut down anyone who gets in the way. I mean, Arya's clearly already there. She's not ordering. She's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill people. And then her friends in the background being like, but Arya, did we really need to kill that man in order to escape just now? (laughs) And will she remember that man in a decade? No one knows. Mm. (sighs) As the long fingers of dawn fanned across the fields, color was returning to the world. Where gray men had sat gray horses armed with shadow spears, the points of ten thousand lances, now glinted silverly cold, and on the myriad flapping banners, Catalan saw the blush of red and pink and orange, 
the richness of blues and browns, the blaze of gold and yellow, all the power of Storm's End and Highgarden, the power that had been Renly's an hour ago. They belong to Stannis now, she realized, even if they do not know it themselves yet. Where else are they to turn, if not to the last Baratheon? Stannis has won all with a single evil stroke. I am the rightful king, he had declared, his jaw clenched hard as iron, and your son no less a traitor than my brother here. His day will come as well. A chill went through her. Ah... Don't worry, Catelyn, he doesn't get all of the swords, and it's the other creepy guy that gets your son, not Stannis. Right. Where else are they to turn, if not to the last Baratheon? To the other- Maybe to the last allegedly, dragon. Allegedly, allegedly Baratheon. Well, I mean, some of them go to the Lannisters, we're like, fuck this. <laughs> Maybe to the next last dragon. You know, so. Aegon. Aegon Targaryen. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, as we've discussed, similar vibes. Similar, yeah. <sighs> well, I mean, yeah, in terms of the other creepy guy that gets him, not Stannis. But I mean, was it? How do we know? The leech. The leech didn't play a role. The leech, the lord leech, pick one. Whichever one you want. Both leeches. Oh, what if? Okay, hold on. What if? What if? The leech, as Stannis was burning the leech on the brazier, it... Warged into Roose Bolton Mm-mm. to nope to stab Rob Stark. Have you thought of that? I had not thought of that, and now I wish I had never thought of it. <laughs> Ever. Now that I'm thinking of it, I'm going to try to dispose of the thought. <laughs> All right. All right, Eliana. You're going to have to stop <laughs> leeching off my energy with that one. Oh, okay. Well, I just wanted right. to make a pun. I don't know. I didn't have. I didn't have much else. You're gonna have to le. No, le. No, that one doesn't work either. Leech I'll me alone. Leech me alone. That is a. There you go. Leech me alone. That could be a great alternate title too. Now that you say it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I think that's that's more of a red wedding kind of title. Leech me alone, Ruth Bolton. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in to a very grave episode, a very serious episode. Uh, (laughs) We're going to be really sad to leech you alone. But if you want to check out our social media this week, send us an email about what you're thinking about the episodes or even tweet us a thread of your own about your feelings about Catalan 4. You can do that at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N, or Email us over at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and perhaps you would like to keep up with us and our episodes and see what happens next. Not that this is a reread or anything. You can find us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts. So apparently everyone hates that now. Um, (laughs) Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, Overcast maybe? Audible? Pandora? Yeah, yeah iHeartRadio? Yeah. We're there. You're <laughs> we're so good. We're on a bunch of stuff. I did great this week. Last week I was like, I gotta redeem myself. Redemption arc for Eliana. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe it's not a redemption arc. Okay, maybe it's a humanization arc. But... Oh, wow. Do I weep <laughs> over my children? 
Listen, if you don't want to subscribe to us on one of those fancy schmancy public platforms, you can head over to patreon.com where there are a bunch of perks depending on the tier you sign up for. Stranger tier and above, five bucks and above tier, you're going to get special episodes every month, whether they're His Dark Materials or A Song of Ice and Fire. This month is A Song of Ice and Fire. It is on the Free Cities Lorath. And don't forget about our Discord brunch slash happy hour. This month will be happening July 18th, Sunday, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And a bunch of fun shenanigans are going to happen. Some free prizes, giveaways, some bingos, some trivia, you name it. Come hang out with us. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, I'm really excited because this month our friend Julie on the Patreon has put together some really fun activities for trivia. Um, because yes. it's July, Julie July. Um, Julie July. So that it's been really great and it's, it's going to be fun. Come hang out. Yeah, and I've got to say, Julie, Julie's got an eye it's, for it. She's it's fun. Gotten, it looks really good. So I'm excited. Yes. Well, as always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.